this morning as we complete chapter 11. Praise God, we are almost at the end of Daniel. It looks like it'll be 25 uh, altogether, 25 sermons on this book. Maybe we should write a book, what do you reckon? Daniel 11, 36 we're looking at. All right. I hope uh, this series has been a blessing to you. Daniel 11, verse 36. And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvellous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. For that, that is determined, shall be done. Neither shall he regard the god of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any god, for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his estate shall he honour the god of forces, and a god whom his fathers knew not shall he honour with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strong, strange god, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships. And he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. He shall enter also into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But they shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. He shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make a way with and he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end, and none shall help him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll commit this time to him. Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you that you have preserved it for us perfectly, and we can trust every word within it. We ask for your blessing upon us now, that you would be our teacher and our God, that our hearts would be open to your truth, that our minds would be able to understand what you have, would have us to learn and that we would have the courage and strength and the grace that we need from you to live it. So once again, we thank you for this time and we thank you for the salvation that we enjoy in this place. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we examined the amazing accuracy of this chapter 11 and the detail that it gave us providing the prophecy about the history of the world's greatest empires and their impact on the people of Israel. Okay, so remember all that all that stuff that was going uh, that was that was detailed for us with particular people and daughters of this one given to that one and and what the motive was behind it. And then we looked at what was corresponding in history and we found that it was actually matching perfectly. The end of the passage we read included the atrocities. And the character of this one called Antiochus Epiphanes, if you remember. So this fellow has come up more than once in, in the book of Daniel. And he was ruling during the Greek empire over Israel. But we saw that towards the end of his particular rule, um, the Romans were giving him trouble. So whenever he wanted, and these guys were having 
fights among each other between the Seleucids in the north, that were the north of Israel, and the Ptolemies in the south who were ruling Egypt. So the, the north he was ruling from Syria, and the south, uh, the Ptolemies were ruling from uh, Egypt. And I believe that Cleopatra was uh, Ptolemy's uh, daughter. Okay. She was mentioned as well last week. So Rome started to was rising in power, becoming more and more influential, and uh, the, the Greek Empire was waning. And what we found with Antiochus is that with each, and he had a number of failed plans. Remember, he, he tried to organize a few shifty maneuvers there, and they didn't work out for him. And every time he failed, he got upset. And who did he take his rage out on? On the Jews. And so we, we have listed for us a number of atrocities that he committed. In one of those where he lost the battle to Ptolemy, he slaughtered some 80,000 Jews and sent 40,000 into captivity. And later on, he also sacrificed a pig on, the, on the, the altar in the temple and had a statue of Zeus put in the holy place or the holy of holies. But now what we have right after um, uh, this description of Antiochus, who is like a forerunner to the Antichrist, is like a picture of what's coming up in the future, we have this, this description of how the people of God will respond to the ongoing afflictions that they will have to endure all the way to the end. So if you go back to verse 33 and 34, I just want to remind us about what it said about the, the people of God. And this is specifically concerning Israel, okay, here. It says, And they that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword, and by flame, by captivity, and by spoil many days. Now when they shall fall, thou shalt be holpen with a little help, but many shall cleave to them with flattery. So these the few verses serve uh, as a pause now between the historical stuff we've been reading and now all of a sudden this other thing that's happening towards the end. And they, it's almost like they're, they're saying, all right, we're finished with Antiochus. Now we're actually shifting forward a few thousand years right to the end. So that the, the time frame now shifts all the way to the end and there's no longer, Antiochus is gone here now. He's, he's long gone. But what we notice is that this verse 33 and 34 are describing what's going to happen to the Jews from that period all the way to the end. And it says there they're going to be, they're going to fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by spoil many days. Um, who would agree that this has been the history of the Jews over, over, the, over time? Uh, over the centuries, they have been probably the most demonized and persecuted group of people in all of history. During the Roman era, Jerusalem was, at 70 AD, was burnt to the ground. Okay? The temple that they have there in Jerusalem at the moment is less than a, a wall of a foundation. They tore that whole structure down, the Romans, in, in 70 AD. The Jews were then dispersed into the world. They ended up going all over the place. And during the Middle Ages, they were also used as scapegoats by the Roman Catholic Church for everything that went wrong. So when the plague came along, whose fault was it? It was the Jews. When someone went missing and the murder, murder had taken place, who was it? It was the Jews. They even concocted a number of stories that during um, their Passover, whenever the Jews would celebrate their Passover, that they would, they would actually take a, a Christian child and sacrifice it. Okay? So they made up all these weird and wonderful stories about Jews breaking into churches and trying to stab the communion, the bread. 
and that the communion bread would, would bleed and that it would try and fly away. <clears throat> anyway, so they were seen as scapegoats, but thousands were murdered because of those foolish lies. Okay? So they were used as scapegoat for many, many years. Um, and so for 2,000 years, they had also lost control or ownership of their own land. They were dispersed. They couldn't go back. Um, for 400 years, the, the Muslims under the, um, the, under the uh, what's it called? They're the Turks, the Ottomans, um, had ruled that area, that area. So they have struggled uh, uh, a great deal during history, and that's not counting the 6 million or so that were gassed, killed, shot during the Second World War. Unfortunately, much of their suffering has been a result of their rejection of God. You notice they walked for 40 years in a desert because they failed that test. And when Christ came, when their Messiah came, they rejected him as well. And so we've seen soon after that, we see the destruction of Jerusalem as well. Unfortunately, much of their suffering has been the result of their own sin and rejection of God. But God has, the Bible says, not given up on his people. He has not given up on them. And we find in the Bible, we find at the end, God calls to them again and they finally respond. They finally believe that Jesus is the actual Messiah and they do what the Bible calls amazing or wonderful exploits. Okay? And it says here, though, that even though many will fall, they're going to be purified. And God allows them to go through suffering so that their faith can be purified and they can turn back to God. And you'll notice it also says here that some will cleave to them with flatteries. Who's cleaving to the Jews with flatteries? Who cleaves to the Jews with flatteries? I wonder if it's uh, maybe the West that uses their position in the Middle East to actually um, be an influence uh, in the Middle East. I just wonder that. Um, and maybe they're considered a valuable resource to the Gentile world. There are many Jews that during, their, during the uh, diaspora, during their, um, their, their spread throughout the entire world, were persecuted and be, they became money lenders, many of them. Okay? Um, many of them got into um, uh, jewellery, making jewellery and those sorts of things. And so you'll notice that what, ended up, what ends up happening is that when people become money lenders and they, they, they deal with things like gold and that sort of stuff, they are often seen as with suspicion. And that's what uh, uh, Hitler managed to do. Managed to say, the reason we've got all these troubles in Germany is because the Jews, they're the ones who are controlling the money system. They're the ones who are controlling the gold or whatever else he was saying. And so he then managed to take away most of their possessions and say that they were the thing and, and managed to kill millions of them hasn't changed hasn't changed okay so some people cling to them with flatteries and others uh, look to them with um with disdain but ultimately the ones who are faithful will be purified and will turn to christ which explains what verse 35 means even you'll notice it says in verse 35 how it finishes even to the time of the end okay so even to the time of the end, which is where we now find ourselves. So it's gone from Antiochus and the German and the German, the, the, the Grecian Empire, uh, and finally finishing up with Antiochus. Now we have a description of the, the suffering that God's people are going to have to go through all the way to the end, to the time of the end, and that's where we find ourselves. 
the final few years now, before the return of Christ to the earth. The final seven years, what we call the tribulation, and the final three and a half years of that seven years, which is called the time of Jacob's trouble. And Jacob is a reference to Israel. Okay? So as I said, Antiochus Epiphanes is long gone by now. Thousands of years have passed and we've been transported to the final days. Now, Daniel records these next verses like the story is almost just continuing. But that's what he was doing before as well. Because you'll notice the king of the south, the king of the north, weren't the same person when you read through the first 35 verses of that chapter. When he was talking about the king of the north, it could have been the next generation of king or the generation even after that. And he's just telling you a story about who, the, who was responsible and what they did at that particular time. And so the story is continuing here, but now we have mention of another king. One who is almost like Antiochus Epiphanes, but now he's gone what we call the next level. Okay, He is far worse than him. And so Jesus warned the Jews when he was preaching to them years after, more than 200 years after Antiochus Epiphanes had passed away about this coming king. And he warned the Jews about this character that was coming and that he would once again desecrate the temple and that he would once again do what, in a similar fashion, to what Antiochus did. So turn to Matthew 24 with me and we'll look at verses 15 to 24 as we see Jesus warning to his own people. Now, he's speaking specifically to the Jews here. And the reason is, it's just to the Jews, because he's talking to those who were living in Judea and, and the specific time for them that they should be careful of. Okay? Matthew 24, 15. Now, just, to, just before, before we start, that term, abomination of desolation, see that? That abomination of desolation was the statue of Zeus that was put in the temple and desecrated the temple. Okay, So where God's holy of holies was, there, where God's presence was meant to be, they put a statue of Zeus there. Now, it's a pretty big desecration when you think of it. Now, a similar thing is going to happen in the future. Listen to Jesus' words here. Matthew 24, 15. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of the house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight may not uh, be not in the winter neither on the Sabbath day, for then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake those days shall be shortened. Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not, for there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Now, for those of you who understand why we don't have signs and wonders today, it's because we don't have apostles today. 
the apostles were carrying a message to the people of Israel and to the world, and that message was verified with signs and wonders. Okay, So the Greeks desire wisdom, and the Jews require a sign, because that's the way God has dealt with them in the past. They're used to miracles. In fact, God verified who he was and the messages he sent with miracles. And he did that with Moses, did that with a number of other prophets. So when God says to his people in the Old Testament, if, a, if someone comes in my name, if they say anything that's wrong or a prophecy that, that uh, isn't fully correct, what were they to do to them? Stone them to death. And God also said to them, if I send a prophet in my name, he's, I'm going to verify their message by signs and wonders. So the Jews are still waiting for the signs and wonders. You know the miracles that Jesus did? It wasn't enough for them. When they asked, remember they asked Jesus, oh, give us a sign, show us a sign. And Jesus says, well, I'll show you a sign. I'll give you the sign of Jonah, okay? That when you kill me, okay, I'm going to rise again on the third day. They still didn't believe it. So that's just the reason this verse 24 is listed, that he's going to show signs and great wonders, is because, first of all, the Jews have to be deceived. They're the ones who we're talking about here. They're, they're the object of this particular story more than anyone else. And even though in this particular case Antiochus Epiphanes had desecrated the temple more than 200 years before, is Jesus pointing to the past or the future? He's pointing to the future here. Hang on a sec, but Antiochus already desecrated the temple and Jesus is saying, that, that's not him. This is coming. And this is going to be a time the world has never seen before. In fact, it's going to be so much suffering and tribulation that there's going to be nothing that's ever existed like it ever, ever before or ever again. And so there's going to be, it's almost like they gave the Jews a picture of what was coming because Antiochus put a statue. And so what's the Antichrist going to do? He's going to put an image of himself there. They're going to put an image of himself there. And this image is going to move. Okay, I don't know how the image is going to move. I don't know if it's going to be a hologram, a, a moving statue, whatever way it is, it's going to look like a miraculous thing. Okay, And so he warns his people and he says, when you see that to his people living in Judea in the coming days, he says, run for the hills. Get out of there. Don't hang around because this is not going to be a good time at all. This is going to be the worst time for you and the worst tribulation you're going to go through ever a time of suffering so great and persecution so fierce that nothing else has ever existed like it. And here is the great deception. See where it says, he goes, If any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. The great deception is that Christ is going to be on the earth. Okay, They're going to say, and people are going to be saying, the Messiah has arrived and that's him over there. We can go and see him. We can go and listen to him now. And he warns them and says, if anyone says to you that low Christ is here or there, don't believe it. And the Jews are going to be susceptible to this because they're still waiting for their Messiah. He tells them, don't believe it. Why? Because the scriptures clearly teach that when Christ returns, he's not going to be returning as a man walking down the street or born of, as a child again. He's going to be returning in the clouds with his saints coming back to the earth and the whole world will see him. 
In fact, there's an interesting phrase in, uh, in Revelation where it says that the, the heaven is going to be opened up and they're going to see the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and the whole world's going to mourn. Now, for the whole world to mourn and see that image before he actually starts coming down is an interesting thought. How long might you have to wait before... I wonder if the whole world has to turn around once for them to see him, everyone, him sitting there and ready to come down. Because it says that they're going to... They're going to hide themselves under the rocks. They're going to hide in caves. And they're going to say, who's going to save us now? They're going to see him and he's about to return. So Jesus warns his people and says, they're going to try and deceive you. And if anyone says to you that he's here or there, physically on the earth, regardless of what miracles he may be trying to do or to prove himself, don't believe it. Because I'm not returning in that way. And so he says that, in verse 24, there shall arise false Christs and false prophets. And they're going to show great signs and wonders. There are, by the looks of it, many false Christs and many false prophets. But there will be one false Christ that will stand above them all. You see good lesson to learn the bible says there are many devils but one devil okay the word devils is referred to when you when you read your your kjv it doesn't use the word demons it uses devils okay when it's plural it's referring to all the fallen angels when it's referring to just one devil it's referring to satan okay we also know that there are many false prophets but there will be one false prophet who will come at the end with the Antichrist, who will deceive the entire world. We know there are many gods, but there's only one true God. Okay? There are many spirits, but there's only one Holy Spirit. And as the Apostle John writes in 1 John 2.18, he says, Little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard, that Antichrist shall come. There's a single. Even now, there are many antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. There are many antichrists, but there will be one antichrist who will deceive the world. And this passage, and it's just, it, it describes him, uh, it, we're gonna, it's just going to describe his character now. Now, it gives us an amazing description of what he's going to be like in his heart, this guy. And just to give you a bit of a foundation, Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. So as a person thinks in his heart and is in his heart, that's the actual way they are. They may not show it on the outside, but that's the way they actually are. Okay. Um, Luke 6, 45, Jesus says the same sort of principle. He says, A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaketh. And so from the heart issues uh, the things of life, okay? So Jesus says, not what you eat, not what you put into your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of your heart that defiles you. Because what's in the heart are things like hatred and fornication and murder and all those different types of things. So let's look at verse 36. Let's have, a, let's have a sneak peek of who this character is and what the heart of this king is actually like. 
Daniel 11.36 says, And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvellous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. For that that is determined shall be done. So this king does not himself does not consider himself inferior to any god he considers himself superior to all the gods but when you listen to these words or you read these words there's not a character that comes to mind that exalts himself that does according to his own will that magnifies himself and that speaks marvelous things against the god of gods who's that it's the devil the devil has the same heart as this particular fellow and he will do precisely as Satan did as even when he was serving in heaven. And he walked among the fiery stones in heaven. He was even in the Garden of Eden. But the Bible says that his heart was lifted up. He exalted himself. And so Ezekiel 28 verse 17 says, Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty that has corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. So notice that his heart was lifted up. Okay, It was what was going on inside him that determined what type of character he actually was. And his heart was already corrupted because he thought more highly of himself than what he actually was. So he exalted himself just like this king is going to do. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 to 14. As we see once again, something happening in the heart of Satan that gives us a glimpse of the heart of this king as well. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. It says there, how, thou art, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said, where? In thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Notice that one word that sticks out there more than anything else. I. I will. I, 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 I. Yeah, exactly right. I, I, Captain. Um, the heart of the king was to do his own will. I will. And so this fellow, have you ever heard one of the reasons that God loved David so much was that he had a heart after his. One of the reasons that David is so beloved by, beloved by God is that God says himself that he had a heart after his heart. Okay, it was He was trying to mimic God's own heart. He wanted to be exactly like God, which should be our aim, by the, by the, by the way. Okay, In fact, God declares it a number of times in the Bible. But just as David had a heart after God's heart, the willful king that's coming in the future, the one we call the Antichrist, will have a heart after Satan's heart. His heart will be right after his. 
he will want to be like him he will serve him he will want to be just like him and that's the contrast of the heart or a complete contrast to Jesus heart have you ever been so stressed or anxious in your life that it takes away every ounce of energy from you you've actually got no energy so when you have you ever reached a point where stress is so bad that you've actually got no energy you feel completely depleted well Jesus felt like this in the night of his betrayal he was exhausted and even his own disciples who were in great sorrow because he had told them about what was going to happen in fact he had just told them after they had that supper together that one of them would betray him that he would be handed over to the Romans that he would be rejected by his own people that he would be crucified as a common criminal and they lost strength they were actually in sorrow as well and even though they lost strength as well he didn't and they maybe had never seen him like this before though you see this was a very different time than all the other times they had seen him and he had never been wrong everything he ever said to them was perfectly true but perfectly came to pass as well whatever he said was going to happen remember he told peter go and catch a fish and there's going to be a coin in the fish's mouth cast your sheet your nets on the right hand side and you're going to catch the fish do this or do that every time he told them something it always perfectly came to pass now He's gone and told them, I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to be handed over to the Romans and they're going to crucify me on the cross. And you're all going to scatter. Well, they probably wished that he was wrong this time. And so they went to uh, Mount of Olives and Jesus needed some time to pray. And so he took with him three, okay? Those three which were closest to him, Peter, James and John. And so he, he, and it says he, he went to pray by himself, not with them. He, and he warned them and he said, you guys pray over here and be careful because the temp, the temp is coming and be careful lest you be tempted now. And so it says he went to pray a stone's throw away. Not that far, but still far enough for them not to necessarily hear him. So as he went to pray alone, um, he came back at the end of his prayer and how did he find them? asleep they were sleeping now you might say those foolish men you know how couldn't they pray with jesus for just that time how couldn't they you know hold their ground and pray because to support him during this hard time now you may and i may protest and complain about their insensitivity or their weak faith but i haven't been in their shoes And Luke records why they fell asleep. They didn't fall asleep because they were, they'd partied too much or they had, or they were just too lazy. In fact, Luke 22, 45 tells us why they fell asleep. It says that when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. You ever cried that much that you actually just worn out? I have. And I've lost a family member. You're just exhausted. And so even his disciples were exhausted. But then we see the Lord. And we see 
he's warned them and he's praying for them as well and he's asked them to stay alert and pray lest they be tempted but he was about to endure the most excruciating death and he knew every part of what was coming he knew he'd have to suffer and carry the dreadful load of the world's sin upon his own shoulders he knew he'd be treated as a, a criminal and probably the worst of criminals humiliated in front of all the people and he knew that there'd come a time when he was bearing all our sins that his own father couldn't even bear to look at him that he had never experienced before but he knew it was coming he knew all too well was was coming for him that night in fact he's ang- he's i won't say anxiety but his stress was so high that when he sweat blood was coming out at the same time so I'm not, I haven't experienced that type of anguish before but what's different about the heart of our saviour and the heart of that willful king is that when he prayed he said father if thou be willing if it's your will remove this cup from me nevertheless not my will but thine be done. And then he said, then it says that an angel appeared from heaven to strengthen him and to support him. Um, not my will, but thine. In the face of what our Saviour had to endure, his heart was humbled still before the Father. He still submitted himself to the Father's will. He knew from an earthly perspective how much pain he was going to experience, but he also knew from, the, from, the, from his uh, God uh, nature that he was going to be disconnected from his father for the first time. And it was a difficult thing for him to face. But still, in the face of all that, he said, not my will, but yours. He was faithful to the end. In contrast the Antichrist will magnify himself above all other gods. There's a rebellious streak in that heart. There's a streak that says, I'm not going to be subject to anyone. I want to do it my way. It's my will. It's my way or the highway. And that's what he's going to exhibit in his life, this person. All the gods throughout all ages are really, we know, manifestations of devils. Okay? They're all, and whether they're gods from Persia, Grecia, Rome, do you remember the, the ruling angels over those areas? The same sort of thing. These are all demons. Whether, whether, whether it's uh, uh, the god Ra, the sun god, or whether it's Horus, or whether it's Zeus, or whether, you know all these go- who these gods are? These gods are all these devils playing god. He's not going to regard any of them. You know why he's not going to regard everyone? Because he knows them all. He knows them all. He knows they're all devils. He's not going to regard any of them. In fact, he's going to regard himself above all of them. He knows all these gods. He knows that they're all just demons playing God over the ignorance of men. All these gods are somehow fake but real at the same time. You know, I saw a meme recently. Um, that was designed to mock the Christian God and the Bible. And it quoted Exodus 12.12. 12. 
And it says in Exodus 12, 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And this particular meme made a mockery of that, of that particular verse. It, and the question asks, Oh, does the God of Israel recognize that there are other gods? In other words, he was saying, Scripture must be contradicting itself. Scripture can't be true, because if the Scripture says there's only one God, how can he recognize other gods? Yeah, God recognizes them. He recognizes them all. He knows them all. Who was he judging when he was judging the gods of Egypt? He judges all those devils that were masquerading as gods. He recognized and judged them all because they were deceivers and in the end they were holding his people captive. You know, on the day of Passover, when that angel of death came over, the one true God judged all the gods of Egypt and revealed how impotent they were against his almighty power. How many gods did the Egyptians have? They had a multitude of gods, okay? They had a, a, a whole plethora of them, all in a, a massive hierarchy. And you know what? Not one of his plagues they could stop. God says, I'm going I'm to send down one plague after the other. Let's see if you guys can stop it. Let's see if you can thwart me. And first plague came, second plague came, third plague, all the way to the tenth. They could not stop him. So God judged the gods of Egypt and found them to be completely useless. And he's done that with every other God since too, by the way. There is no demon in hell that can come against the child of, of God. Did you know that? You don't need to be afraid. You know, people, they're afraid of devils and spirits and all that sort of stuff. You have no need to be afraid because a God who is in you is greater than in the world. There is no devil. There is no, there is no deception that can take you as his child. There is nothing for us to fear when it comes to the devil or the devil's we are to fear things like sin, okay? And our own internal, internal desires that come up. So the devil's going to know in the end that he's going to fail. The devil, and despite his helpless position, the devil already knows he's being judged, that he lost. The big major battle that he lost was on that cross, because he thought he was actually winning that victory by crucifying the Son of God. Instead, when Jesus rose on the third day, the whole thing was flipped the other way. And he realized that he had lost. And then in the end, he's going to lose because the Son of God is going to return. But regardless of his helpless position, the devil will find himself in the latter days. He will not desist from trying to carry out his foolish plan. However slight a chance... However many he can take down with him, he'll take it. Because he knows he's already been judged and his sentence will be severe. No, this is his last vain opportunity to take control of the world and stop God. And so his hatred for God, if you look at it, his hatred for God shall be in the heart of this Antichrist as well. The devil hates God. He hates him more than you and I can probably understand. He's lost so much. Remember Antiochus Epiphanes, whenever he'd lose a battle, he'd take it out on, on the Jews. The devil's the same type of character. 
He's lost so many times now. He's thwarted so many times. He doesn't know which direction to go because he gets outmaneuvered every time and he just gets more and more frustrated because he thinks of himself higher than God. Yet he loses all the time. So what does he do? He takes his vengeance out on people, on those who were created in God's image. He hates us. He especially hates the children of God. And so this hatred for God is also in the heart of the Antichrist, whose heart shall be after Satan's own heart. And it says, This man shall speak marvellous things against the God of gods and shall prosper, which means he's going to grow in power until the indignation be accomplished, until what he has to do is going to get done. Now look at verse 37 of Daniel 11. Daniel 11, verse 37. It says there that neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his estate, he uh, shall he honour the God of forces. And a God whom his fathers knew not, shall he honour with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. Verse 39 then says, Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gains. Now, it says here, he has no desire. He doesn't care what his family, what gods his family had. And it says he has no desire of women. Hmm. Interesting thought. Does it indicate that he may be homosexual? Maybe. Not necessarily. Maybe his lust for power is so great he hasn't got time for women. That's his greatest lust. And it says he, he honours a God of forces, a God of power. The word forces here, when you look at the word forces and the way it's used in the Bible, it's normally used in a sense of great strength, of power, of authority. Something like the forces of an army, the strength of a, of a fortress, something that has power. And his main goal will be to gain power. And he will do it through war and cunning, very much like Antiochus Epiphanes. And it says, but in his estate, in his own place, when he's by himself, even though out there he's not going to honour any other god, he actually honours a god. This god of these forces, this, the god of, of power, and he will bow the knee to this god. But he won't deny this God. And it's, he's going to give him more and more glory as the days go on. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. We're going to, and I think you already know which God he is going to be bowing the knee to. It's the God who gives him this power. Revelation 13 verse 2. It says there, And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of the heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast, who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. 
and power was given uh, unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. Does it sound familiar? That's what we just read. That this man's going to speak boastful things against God. This is the same person. And where does he get his ultimately his power from and his kingdom? Where does he get his power from? From the dragon. Who is the dragon? The devil. He ultimately, he gets all his power from the devil. Who will deliver the kingdoms of the world to this particular fellow. Ever heard that? Remember what a particular being offered Jesus when he was fasting for 40 days in the wilderness? Remember someone came to Jesus and said, if you bow the knee to me, I'm going to give you all the kingdoms of the world. And it says that he actually showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment. What did Jesus say? No, you shall worship the God alone. You shall worship only the God. What do you think this fellow said? I'll take it. I'll take it. All right, I'll bow the knee to you. Give me everything. Give me the whole lot. And he's going to honour him as his God. And he will gain in power and he will gain in, uh, in military might. And most of it is going to be because, or pretty much all of it is because, he's said yes to the devil. He's literally sold his soul for that. Look at verse 39 again. And so thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God, whom he shall increase, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory. And shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. So those protected lands in which his kings rule. Okay, Remember there are how many kings in this final kingdom? There are going to be ten. There will be ten kings. They're his strongholds. They're the places that, that he will do what he wants. And he's going to give them, cause them to rule over many, many people. And he will divide the land for gain. Greece may no longer be in power here as it was in Antiochus' time. There's a revived Roman Empire now with, ten, with a ten-king confederacy. But look at what happens. Does he have it all his own way? He doesn't. He thinks he's going to have just all the world's, all the kings of the world handed to him on a platter, but it doesn't happen that way. Look at verse 40. It says, And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him. Hang on. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships. And he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. He shall enter also into the glorious land and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief and the children of Ammon. At the time of the rule of these ten kings, which is described for us in the book of Revelation and also mentioned in Daniel, we are told that a king from the south, is going to come at him who is in the north. So where's the north? North is the north of Israel. Okay, South is the south of Israel. And in particular, it looks like this king of the south is going to be ruling over Egypt. At least Egypt and maybe a number of other countries on top of Egypt. 
It's going to be a very similar situation with the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. They didn't just have one country they ruled over. They ruled over a, a number of countries. They were kings over a number of countries. We're going to have the same setup here. There's going to be a king from the south who rules over Egypt plus a number of countries. Do you remember it said that, um, uh, that Ethiopia and thing will be at his door? In other words, he would have taken all of Egypt and he, his next thing would have been to take Ethiopia. But he doesn't get to go there because he hears bad news and doesn't worry about it anymore. But these kings shall be ruling over a number of countries all at once. And so this king of the south is going to resist him. And it says that this Antichrist will come against him with a large army and he'll gain victory over him and he'll take the whole of Egypt with him and plunder the riches of Egypt and many other countries which were under that particular king. And during this time, like Antiochus Epiphanes also did, he takes control of Israel, the land of Israel, at this particular time. Have a look at verse 42 and 43. It says, He shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. But he shall have power over the treasuries of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. So he hadn't taken them just yet. He was about to take the whole lot. Okay, But we also know something else is going on. So one of the kings of the ten is actually rebelling against him. And it's not just one. There are going to be three that rebel against him. Go back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 24. He's not going to have it all his own way. He's going to have some who rebel against him. And he's going to have to subdue them, which he will do. Daniel 7, 24 says, And the, and the ten horns of out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. And another shall arise after them. That's the Antichrist. And he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time, and times, and the dividing of a time, for three and a half years. And he's going to speak great words against the Most High. Sound familiar again? same person this is the same person and he will have to subdue three of those kings the ten aren't necessarily going to be all on board but he's going to have ten kingdoms and three of those kings he's going to have to keep under control and he says that as soon as he defeats the king from the south verse 44 says in Daniel 11 but tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make, a, make away many. Interesting. So where he thought that maybe he only had to deal with the king of the south, now he's got problems on multiple fronts. He's taking care of the king of the south, but now he's going to hear what's interesting is he's going to hear that there's trouble coming from the north and trouble coming from the east. Hmm. Who's to the north? And who's to the east? His, his area was already to the north. So who's north of north? Hmm. Do you want to know where, where Moscow is? Yeah, Moscow is pretty much dead north of Jerusalem. Dead north. 
And who with the East is going to give him trouble? Well, maybe the, the People's Republic of China is not going to be too happy with him. So we have this situation where, and what's interesting is that they align with today's sort of deal, right? So the king of the, the someone coming, it just says trouble from the north. It doesn't say the king of the north. It says there's trouble coming from the north and there's trouble coming from the east. Well, the kings of the east, the Bible says, are going to come into Israel. And Gog and Magog is Russia. And they're going to come south. And so he's going to have a problem in that he's taken Israel for himself and he's going to hear trouble now coming from the north and they're preparing themselves to actually defy him. Okay, But look at verse 45. It says, And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. Now, where's between the seas? Between the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea, there's the holy mount, right? There's, there's where the temple is. And he's going to set himself up there. Okay? He's going to make that now his military base from where he wants to control everything because he knows that they're all coming in that direction. And so what's, what's setting up now? You see the stage is set. The actors are all dressed up, ready for their parts. And there's going to come a battle with all these players involved. Okay, With him there, amassing all his armies, all in that one place. With Russia coming down and with China coming across, all wanting to take that bit of land. I don't know why at the moment, but there's something going on. And they're lining themselves up for a massive battle. And that battle is the Battle of Armageddon. Okay, They're all going to mass all their armies all there. The Bible even says the river Euphrates gets dried up so the kings of the east can just march right in. Okay, They're all there ready for one big showdown. And a big showdown actually comes. Because it tells us that even though he sets himself up right on that mount where the temple is, right in Jerusalem, which he makes now his headquarters, it says, yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. You know why he's going to come to his end and none shall help him? Because that's when the Lord returns. And that's the, the, the battle of Armageddon are all those those different countries all coming to that one place to have a massive battle but then align themselves against God okay and while they're ready for a big fight amongst each other Christ comes and destroys them all which we call the second coming so turn with me just finally to Revelation 19 19 just for our final thing we're wrapping up now Revelation 19, 19 says, And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist here, that's the one who speaks blasphemy against God, who's proud in his heart. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, they're the, they're the kings that were aligning themselves with him, and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. 
And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. So what's my message to us to wrap it up? That this man sought to gain all the kings of the world. Where was he now? He was in a lake of fire. He found himself defeated and whatever promises the devil made him, the devil could not deliver. The Every promise the devil ever makes is has a built-in lie in it. It might look nice and shiny on the outside. It might look as if it's a, a fantastic thing to have, but ultimately there's a problem with it. There's a trick in it. There's something you're going to have to pay in it. See, we, we, we looked at the, the covenant this morning with our communion time. And the covenant of God, the new covenant that we are in, is something that God paid for completely himself. And it's offered to us as a gift. No strings attached. We receive it as a gift. I don't have to work for it. I don't have to earn it. I don't deserve it. But God says, if you just simply accept it, I'll give it to you. But the devil doesn't work that way. The devil's like, and, I, and I'm sorry for referring to um, the mafia again. Don't ever get a favour from a mafia, okay? Don't ever accept a favour or a gift or anything because everything has something built into it. And the devil's exactly the same. This fellow who we saw had a heart after the devil, not a heart after God, after the devil, said, yes, I'll take all the kingdoms. Jesus didn't want them. I'll take them. But yet, overnight, when he was aligning himself to try and stop Jesus and his armies coming from heaven, he lost his soul. And Jesus warns of that, doesn't he? He says, what does a profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And he did. He lost his own soul. He made an agreement with someone who could not be trusted. He bowed the knee and instead of receiving what he, was, what he thought he was going to receive, he was conned. He played the puppet for the devil. And ultimately, if you don't know Christ, if you haven't received the new covenant and you haven't agreed to that covenant for your own life, if you haven't received salvation as a gift and you're trying to work your way to heaven... You're playing the puppet. Because the devil's going to say, it's okay, don't, don't read over, don't worry about that. Just keep on doing over here. You keep working away, I'll keep, I'll keep supporting you. You know, the devil doesn't come to you ever in you know, the, the red overalls and the, and the horns and the pitchfork, okay? I've never seen him like that. He doesn't come to you. The Bible says he comes to you as an angel of light. And he comes as a wolf in sheep's clothing. So he looks nice. What he's presenting to you looks actually good, but it's always a built-in sting. And so my plead with you today is that if you haven't entered into a covenant with God, if you haven't entered into this new covenant, you are being judged on your own sins and you will have to pay for your own sins. And there's only one place you can pay for those sins, and that's a lake of fire. With the devil, with the false uh, 
false prophet and with the Antichrist. I don't want to be there. Do you want to be there? God has made a way for us to be saved. But we have to humble ourselves. And that's the hardest hurdle for most people to get over. You see, most people can't get over the hurdle of not working their own way to heaven. They think they can work their own way to heaven and that's what they think. As long as I try hard enough, God will accept me because I'm good enough. Or look at me, God. Look at what I've done for you. Thinking that God actually is impressed by our goodness. The Bible says that our righteousness is filthy rags to him. There is nothing that impresses him about us because we are corrupted from the inside. So God has to give us a new heart. So my, my uh, plead to you today is if you don't know Christ as your saviour, if you haven't entered into that new agreement, don't leave these doors until you have. Know where your destiny will be. Know that Christ is preparing a home for you in heaven. Know where you're going. Don't leave these doors without knowing. Who, does anyone have insurance here? Does anyone have insurance for their car or for their home or for anything else? You pay for that insurance, don't you? Why wouldn't you make sure about your eternal, eternal security? Why, wouldn't you, why would you leave your eternal soul at risk by not signing on that dotted line and be covered by the blood of Jesus? There's no better insurance policy than the blood of Jesus. You want cover? That's the cover to have. And if you'd like to know more about salvation, if you're not sure, even if you're that much not sure, this much, come and talk to us after. We'd love to share with you how you can know for sure that you are going to heaven. God bless you. Let's close in a final hymn.